You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 1st of March 2023 on Monocle 24. G20 foreign ministers gather in New Delhi. Will anyone sit next to Lavrov? US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin embarks on a mission to the Middle East and the perennial joy of the wrong anthem being played at a sensitive moment. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Latika Burke and Sir William Patey will discuss all the day's big stories. We'll have the latest from Nigeria as a new president-elect is declared. And we'll meet Olga Ivazovska, co-founder of the International Centre for Ukrainian Victory. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Latika Burke, journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and by Sir William Patey, political consultant and former British diplomat. Hello to you both. Um, we were just talking beforehand, Latika, uh, about uh, Munich, which we will milk for one more time. It was nearly a week and a half ago. This was the security conference, which we were both at. How yes. was it for you? Was it any less chaotic and weird than it was for us? I thought it was one of the most uh, wonderfully enjoyable, chaotic, <laughs> high-powered events I've ever seen. If only people knew how shambolic, but how great it is to have so many high-powered people literally pressing the flesh in that way. Uh, they, they might get uh, quite surprised. But also, it's a, a, a great testament to, Andrew, thank God that pandemic is over and people can meet up mm-hmm. in person again. And so much of diplomacy and so much important stuff is done through these chance meetings and encounters and, and bilats. It was good to see it back in force. Um, William, you will have gone, if not to Munich security conferences, then surely to a good few similar wingdings. Did you ever end up having important conversations with people you were stuck in a lift with? Uh, yes, you do. You, uh, it happens <laughs> all the time at the UN and at other international conferences. Indeed, usually you're seeking people out so you can have a conversation with them because it's uh, it's speed dating. Because, uh, you <laughs> yes. know, to set up a bilateral meeting or visit to a country is, takes a lot of effort and is very uh, pro forma. But you can, uh, over 10 minutes, you can uh, advance something quite quickly. The problem is when a diplomat does it, it's speed dating. When a journalist does it, it's stalking. <laughs> you get chucked out. <laughs> yeah, there are many journalists I'm not worried about being stalked. <laughs> uh, we will have more from you both shortly. But first to Nigeria, which does appear to have a new president-elect. Bola Tinubu, former governor of Lagos State, has been declared the winner of last Sunday's presidential election, though with a less than overwhelming mandate. He has 37% of the vote against the 29 and 25% of his main rivals, Atiku Abubakar and Peter Obi, and from a turnout of just 27%. Both Abubakar and Obi had already been dismissive of the election's legitimacy. I'm joined with more by Kadaria Ahmed, journalist and CEO of Radio Now 95.3 FM in Lagos. Um, what is the latest? Are the defeated candidates accepting the result? Um, no, they're not. And um, it's not likely um, that um, they will. They were very unhappy and called for the cancellation of the election results yesterday. Um, our expectation is now that he's been named as president-elect, that they will be seeking to go the legal route and try and get um, some of the uh, ballots, basically, um, that were recorded in his fa- favour, voided 
in a way that would make um, either a rerun inevitable or some sort of um, 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 cancellation that would mean they may have to actually do elections. This is very unlikely, though. We've never seen it happen at the presidential level. We've seen governors chucked out of office after being sworn in as a result of um, decisions by the Supreme Court. It has never happened at the presidential level. I I believe President-elect Tanubu has acknowledged the possibility that there might be legal challenges, but really how plausible is a total do-over? I mean, this is an extraordinary thing to try and organise a presidential election in so vast a country as Nigeria. How soon could it be done all over again if necessary? Well, the thing is, I I don't think there's a provision for, you know, total cancellation and total doing over as far as the electoral um, law goes, because you mustn't forget elections are conducted polling unit by polling unit. So essentially, if you are looking to challenge elections, you have to challenge elections um, according to the units where the elections take place. Now, the issue is whether the totality of the units you challenge and where your challenge is successful whether the votes in those units are then significant to overturn the overall verdict. And this are sort of the work, that's the sort of work that the tribunals will be doing. And where where they feel that um, um, they are significant, then what they would do is they would order elections, but only in those specific places where those troubles um, are deemed to have affected the elections, whether it is allegations of rigging, whether it's overvoting, whether it's a question of disenfranchisement because of violence. So that that is really what the courts will be doing. So even if you get um, a rerun, it won't be a rerun of the whole election. In any case, the truth is that the country is probably never going to be able to afford to do a whole massive election. But apart from that, there's no legal framework for actually cancelling elections in their totality and running them again. How much talk has there been about that turnout, which does seem extraordinarily low, just 27%? Is that a reflection on the lack of faith in the new electoral system, a lack of interest in the candidates? I mean, I mean that in itself uh, arguably delegitimises the president, doesn't it? Well, I mean, unless what you're saying is if people don't come out, then we don't elect a president. No, it doesn't delegitimize him. It makes it um, clear that Nigerians basically have um, still a degree of apathy when it comes to the elections. But this is a process that we have to renew the mandate of a president every four years. And so um, if um, um, you don't do these elections and, and because people don't turn out to vote, then essentially there's a lack created and that won't work but um in 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 essence though if you look at the numbers i think nigerians um have showed they're very unhappy with the ruling party because if you combine the numbers of the sort of three leading candidates um in total they have votes of almost 14 million whereas the winner actually has 8 million so there are more people that voted for the opposition combined than voted for the president sitting. So in that sense, you can say that Nigerians basically passed a vote of no confidence um, on the, the, the APC as a party. But because of the structure of elections, because it has to be the person with the largest votes and that has the spread across the country, because the opposition decided at the last minute basically to shoot themselves in the foot, um, because they fell out, they, they all the, the top three um, um, after Asiwaju all belonged to the opposition People's Democratic Party, and then infighting essentially collapsed those um, 
um, three people and they pulled out and formed one formed his own party, another one went to join an existing party. So there's a there's a sense in which basically is the opposition that lost the election and he didn't win it, if you see what I mean. Kadaria Ahmed in Lagos, thank you very much for joining us. Well, let's bring William and Latika back in and we will look at India. Currently president of the G20, the talking shop comprising 19 significant national economies and the EU. By way of curtain raiser for the G20 summit scheduled for September, New Delhi is hosting a meeting of the G20's foreign ministers, which potentially awkwardly will include Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, for for whom, for obvious reasons has endured something of a drying up of invitations this last year or so. India, however, has been obstinately equivocal about Russia's rampage in Ukraine. The recent meeting of G20 finance ministers turned acrimonious over India's insistence on calling it a crisis or a challenge. Um, William, some diplomatic language there. We we were just talking at the top of the show about the potential uh, of a diplomatic hurly-burly. Is there actually an opportunity here for people to have some sort of a conversation with Lavrov? Well, I, I'm not sure what they would be able to say to Lavrov because they're, they're miles apart at the moment. I mean, the conversations that we'll probably want to have, and I understand that there are no plans for Anthony Blinken or James Cleverly to meet Lavrov separately, <laughs> even though we say these are opportunities for some speed dating, they're, they're, they're excluding him from their table. Um, they'll probably want to work on the Indians and, uh, and the Chinese to some extent, because what they don't want is they don't want the Chinese supplying arms to, uh, to, to Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese have been supportive of Russia, but they've held back from supplying arms. So they'll want that conversation with the Chinese. They'll want to convince the hosts that, you know, this matters. And I think there is a bit of a divide between Europe uh, and the West, what I call the the G7, uh, on how significant the Russian invasion of Ukraine is and the rest of the world, because there'll be Brazil, Indonesia, other South Africa, other countries will be there. And they kind of take a slightly different view on the priority that Ukraine should be given in the current uh, world setup. Yeah, Latika, India has been quite keen to foreshadow that they don't want this whole thing to be about Ukraine. They recognise that it's important, but they seem to want to make it clear they don't think it's that important. Why do you think India has been so equivocal about Ukraine up until this point? Well, it's dependent on Russia for arms supplies, of course. Um, But that doesn't, in my view, justify this ongoing uh, position that they continue to have. And as a G20 host, I think that the rest of the G20 should be actually a bit stronger in standing up and asking India why it's taking the position it's taking or why it's not taking the position we'd like it to be taking. Uh, because they've actually increased their ex- their imports from Russia since the war. And that is directly against what we're trying to achieve in Ukraine. So in, in actions, they're speaking louder than the words that they don't say. And I think if there is a separate question about their dependence on Russia, if that curtails them, okay, that's separate. And we need to have a look at how we can help India address that if that is the reason. I'm not sure it is. And I don't think it's good enough, frankly, from India. Would it make a difference, William, if India did get off the fence on this and said we are unequivocally now against what Russia is doing and if it means having to wean ourselves off Russian arms supplies, perhaps in much the same way that Europe has weaned itself off Russian gas supplies, that is something we are prepared to do? 
It'd be hugely important. Uh, India is a massive country. It's a very significant country. It carries quite a lot of weight in the rest of the world. I mean, mm. we don't hear much about the non-aligned these days, but there is a kind of sense out there that the American order uh, is not widely accepted beyond uh, beyond the uh, Europe, Japan, Korea, uh, and the and the Americas. So there are lots of people who are. Cozying up to uh, to Russia and, and China, uh, without India, they don't have the same economic clout they would have. So it's an important country. If they were to declare uh, that you know Russia's invasion was uh, was unacceptable and that they're going to uh, wean themselves off Russian hydrocarbons um, uh, and and Russian arms supplies, that would be a, a huge strategic shift because the Indians have been traditionally very wary of of the Americans, even although the Americans. In, as part of their suspicion of China and rivalry with China, have made great uh, efforts to woo the Indians in a way that they, they haven't done before. Uh, Latika, if India is less than keen to talk about Ukraine, which other directions will they want to be steering this in? I mean, it, it is for someone like Narendra Modi, who clearly doesn't mind being at the centre of attention, something of an opportunity being president of the G20. Yes, and he would like to see greater focus on uh, helping the developing world and on climate change, of course. But I would make this point it's going to be impossible or it's going to have limited bandwidth. I hate using that term, but but it is appropriate here. For the rest of the G20 uh, or, or the West to deal with those problems if Ukraine is not resolved and if, if this war continues long into the future, the ability to grip those issues are going to be second and third order priorities and they should be first. Modi is right. Climate change is uh, something that we should all be focused on. But look how our attention has changed since the war. So it's in India's own interests to take a stronger position, help the the West, uh, you know, turn back Russia from its repulsive war, and then turn its attention to dealing with a lot of these other global issues that need need solving too. I just want to go back to something you were saying there, William, about the the non-aligned movement, which indeed you don't hear a great deal about uh, anymore. Is that still where Narendra Modi sees India, do you think? Or is he reticent about the idea of India being suborned to one of the other great power blocks? There's a certain amount of, I guess, nationalist ego in play there. I mean, he, he is, of course, entitled, easily entitled to think of India as a major power in its own right. Yes, he is. And and there's no easy home for India because, you know, they're never going to cozy up to the Chinese. They've got plenty of problems with the Chinese, border disputes, Tibet, all of that, uh, nuclear powers, rivalries in the Indian Ocean and, and beyond. Uh, and uh, so and then the Indians have never been comfortable partners or allies with uh, with you, the United States. So. They've they've often I mean the the origin of the BRICS the the Brazil mm-hmm. Russia India China and, uh, and 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 South Africa was was an attempt to sort of get a different block away from the the the, the Bretton Woods countries if you like the post war settlement that sort of thing so we've seen lots of efforts by India to uh, navigate. Uh, Outside great power blocks, when it was the the Russians and the and the Americans, now it's the Russians and, the, and now it's the Americans and the Chinese. I mean, the Russians are bit players when it comes to ch- China. I think uh, that India is just trying to navigate its own way and looking for uh, partner, credible partners and and credible uh, credible areas of influence. But but India does have credible partners. Mm. You know, I- India is now part of the revived Quad. 
And I think that does come with some obligations. It's very clear what the Quad is about. They never say it, of course, it's China. But if that, if that conflict comes to a head, India will be asking the rest of us for support. So where is India today when another country is in its predicament? Well, let's look now at the travel plans as far as we know them of US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin. He will visit the Middle East this weekend, precise countries yet to be revealed, though there is some suggestion that he will drop in on Iraq, which he got to know as Commanding General of US Forces in Iraq from 2010 to 2011. The trip appears to be about reminding or reassuring the region that the United States has not lost interest in it, and while it would be a considerable, which is to say unimaginable, surprise if Iran was on the itinerary, it can be safely surmised that Iran is the intended audience. Um, William Lloyd Austin will almost certainly be visiting at least one of the countries uh, to which you were the ambassador of the United Kingdom. How overjoyed are any of them going to be to see the US Defence Secretary at this point? Well, I I think they'll want to see him. I I mean, I would be surprised if he didn't go to Saudi Arabia. Um, He hasn't visited Saudi Arabia before. Uh, and uh, relationships between uh, Biden's uh, White House and, and Saudi have been uh, cool, to say to say the least. But in any, if, if he's going to re- reassure anybody, the people that need reassured are Saudi Arabia and the UAE, are the two countries that need reassured. They're the ones that feel the Iranian threat the most. The Saudis fear a, a nuclear-armed Iran and have said themselves that they, they don't rule out um, uh, developing a weapon themselves if Iran... Uh, if Iran uh, uh, chooses one, Iraq is already in, Iraq, in, in Iran's camp. Uh, I mean, there's not actually very much the Americans can do about that. Uh, the, the, the Iranian tentacles are so firmly in, in Iraq through the militias and through mm-hmm. its influence that there's not much you can do. Uh, and so he'll be he'll be looking to uh, you know, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, the, the Arab countries uh, with Israel. We're, we're talking about a new alliance here, a new a new group of countries who see Iran as the biggest threat, no longer is Israel seen as the biggest threat to those countries. And uh, what what they'll be asking of him is, you know, the JCPOA is dead. What's plan B? You know, what's uh, what 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 are you going to do? Are we going to live with a nuclear Iran, or what are we going to do about it? That's going to be the hardest question he's got to answer. Is there, Latika, an, an element of theatre about this? I think there is with most diplomacy. This idea that they want to reassure, in one way or another, the region that the United States is not exclusively consumed with what is going on in Europe. Look, I think the United States and everywhere. It's been incredible watching the foreign policy scene over the last year or so and just seeing how little the Middle East uh, takes up anybody's attention. I went to a major foreign policy speech from from, uh, the opposition here in the UK, from Labor, and the Middle East wasn't even mentioned in the speech. It was extraordinary. You know, 10 years ago, the Middle East was all we ever talked about in terms of conflict and foreign policy. So, yes, I do think that drop-off is is risky. Um, not least because of Iran's partnership with Russia. Mm. They, are, they are arming Russia with drones. It's a huge problem. And this is just a portend, I think, for, for the nuclear issue. So I do think this is a really important trip from the United States. But all, all regions are feeling this. I know uh, Australia went to the Munich Security Conference with a message very clearly, please don't forget about the Indo-Pacific Europe while you're, uh, of course, rightly focused on Ukraine. So it's not just the Middle East that feels this concern about neglect. Uh, William, you mentioned a certain freudeur between Washington, D.C. and Riyadh. Do you get any 
sense yet of whether Joe Biden, and we're a fair way into his first term, has a clear vision for how he sees the United States' participation in the Middle East? Is he trying to regard it from the far end of a barge pole as much as he possibly can? Yes, I think the withdrawal from Iraq, withdrawal from Afghanistan is all part of his let's get out of these endless wars. We are not going to fight, uh, we're not going to fight wars in the Middle East anymore. And it's, and it's also the whole everybody hates us and nobody thanks us. Well, there may be a, maybe a bit of that. There's obviously a big reaction in the United States to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that shocked people in the United States and it led to a, a, a definite cooling. And then the, the, the Saudis, for their own reasons, have they've long wanted to have a relationship with Russia as part of OPEC plus you know that's been a, a strategic goal of this for a long time and they now achieved that but of course and that's good for Saudi Arabia's oil policy but it complicates life for them when in in the light of the Ukrainian invasion because the the, the Americans uh, want them to you know, manipulate the oil market in a way that doesn't support the Russians and they're not going to do that because their interests and Russian interests as far as oil and gas are concerned are aligned. So life is a lot more complicated for the Saudis and the Americans now than it used to be when the Saudis were totally reliant on an American security guarantee. The Saudis now regard themselves as having to fend for themselves and they're beginning to try and do that. I think that is a wider perception in the Middle East though. Andrew, I was in Israel last year and from conversations there, there was a definite view that, uh, and it was accepted, I think, in the region as well, that that it's, we can't rely on the US and we shouldn't be expecting the US to police us and look after us and solve our problems. And of course, we've had the Abraham Accords come mm-hmm. out of that process. And that's been, I think, a really positive development in the region. Uh, just a final quick thought on this, uh, William. The IAEA inspectors have found near weapons grade uranium at Iran's Fordo plant. I mean, I suppose it's something that the inspectors are still being permitted in to find such things as near weapons grade uranium. But speaking as somebody well versed in the, the diplomatic nicety, um, what do you make of Iran's line that this reading was due to, and I quote, unintended fluctuations? Yeah, well, I think we can take Iran's uh, <laughs> uh, declarations on this with a pinch of salt. They have an official policy of lying. They even have a word for it in uh, in, in, in Farsi, uh, taqiyah, uh, which allows them to lie in the national interest. Uh, so I think we can take that as a, with a pinch of salt. I think uh, the question is, do the, you know, the, the IEA have said, look, they have they have enriched uranium uh, to a degree for which there is no peaceful uh, p- uh, peaceful use. So the the idea that Iran continues to say it has no aspirations to have a nuclear weapon, we can take that with the same pinch of salt as we took when the Israelis said they didn't have nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 I for one tend to use unintended fluctuations next time an editor complains I've gone over the word count. Uh, but but let's now move on to this. And now we will listen to the national anthem of Hong Kong, China. (laughs) 
awkward. The problem there was that we were listening to Glory to Hong Kong, which is a pro-democracy protest song, and the other people listening to it there were the crowd at an ice hockey fixture in Sarajevo, where Hong Kong had just duffed up Iran 11-1. The song that should have been played in honour of Hong Kong's victory was, of course, China's national anthem, March of the Volunteers, but whether by accident or design, someone queued up the subversive tune instead, and really quite startling numbers of grown adult humans have since been busily engaged in pretending that any of this matters in the least. Um, Latika, I, I, I never get tired of these, the wrong anthem, the wrong flag, the enormous uproar afterwards. It, it's, it should be an Olympic event in itself. Oh, it's wonderful. It's <laughs> wonderful. You know, they say in politics, when there's a choice between cock-up or conspiracy, you always back cock-up. I'm starting to wonder if it's conspiracy here. I, well, I'm, I am as well, because one of the other countries that is most often on the receiving end of this is, of course, North Korea, who can be relied upon to pitch rattles out of pram if somebody runs up the South Korean flag or plays the South Korean anthem. And William, if it was your responsibility, I mean, the temptation just to do it on purpose would be unbearable. Well, it? I'm glad it was Bosnia. And I, I, it's not the first time. So it may be begin to be a conspiracy. But fortunately, it's all been countries who the Chinese can't accuse of a conspiracy. Imagine it being done in London and in, or, or oh, in yeah. Berlin or Paris. It would be absolutely, the Chinese would be going apoplectic. They would assume it's deliberate. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm Scottish. I, I've been at I've been at uh, Murrayfield and at, uh, at Hamden when they played "God Save the Queen," and we booed that apparently, <laughs> until we got our own anthem. The anthem is the anthem is a, a wonderful focal point for emotion. When that, is, you that, get... is, that is fine talk for a night of the realm. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I wasn't booing, of course. You know, but I, I didn't. Are you telling me Scotland has its own anthem? Flower of Scotland. <laughs> I did not know this. Oh my goodness! I'm going to get cancelled. Sent them homeward to think again, proud Edward's army. I mean, it's not. It's only a few <laughs> centuries ago. We're still we still harping okay, on about uh, the past. I can now see how this cock up happens. <laughs> yeah, well, indeed, Flower of Scotland is, in fairness, a total banger. It 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 it, it is a good one. It is. A, I think it is a deficit the English should be more upset about. In that the various constituent nations of the United Kingdom all get their own songs, which are absolute rippers, and and England gets stuck with that that rather lamentable dirge that they are compelled to sing whenever they're about to lose to Australia at cricket. But w- William in in, in your time as an ambassador, were you ever tangentially involved with or responsible for an upside-down flag, the wrong anthem, <laughs> something of Ups, that sort? Upside-down flags were, were, were regular. I would, I would often get irate <laughs> citizens, British citizens, over to, telling me that the flag was upside-down. And, uh, and in fairness, it was usually some local guard who had no idea what way the, right, the flag was meant to be. And it, you know, in fairness to them, most Brits don't know when it's upside-down. Down, you know, you have to have you have to have special lessons, but uh, it's a sign of distress, of course, uh, for well, the British flag. So uh, you know, we would have had the jets flying and the SAS coming if uh, if we if we t- if we turn it upside the, down. The flag hanging thing is a real mm. because I have a friend whose job it is. So when you see a politician standing in front of X amount of flags, and usually it's a joint op, so there's so several flags. Uh, I have a friend whose job it is to hang the flags, and he's so obsessive. I can tell you that in his kit, he has several coat hangers. So this is how you get that lovely triangular long mm-hmm. shape, uh, duct tape. And then he, sta- he he literally takes about half an hour to arrange them. Whenever I now, he's no longer in this job, whenever I send him photos of of, opportun- of picture opportunities, his first thing to say is the flags are backwards. The flags <laughs> are the wrong way around. That is not hung correctly. It's not at the appro- appropriate width to see the Union Jack. And it is quite 
an obsession, honestly. That's why I quite like the idea. When I was in Libya, when Gaddafi was in power, it was just a green flag. There was nothing very to easy. it. Up very, or upside down, very, all the time. And, and actually, the, the ta- I don't know what they've done now, but the Taliban 1.0's flag was just plain white. Yeah, well, uh, yes. they, they hadn't really... I thought that was surrender, but anyway. Oh, well, not something you'd point out to the Taliban. <laughs> um, Latika, our people, which is to say those of Australia, are often victims of something like this when our flag gets muddled up with New with Zealand. New Zealand. But when that happens in Australia and possibly to a lesser extent in New Zealand, but it's it's generally regarded as a, a cause for hilarity. I don't think anyone really gets upset, do no, they? No, you get a few angry tweets on Twitter. That's about it. I think our threshold for getting upset about national symbols is pretty low. New Zealand are the red stars, is that right? That's right. Yes. Oh, and and, and they've, only, they've only got four of them. Yeah, exactly. That may be what they're so bitter there, about. There was a time where the emoji auto keyboard on your phone would, would put up the New Zealand flag when you typed in Australia. So I I actually did get caught out on this a couple of times. And now I double check because uh, the, the angry tweets I got in response were enough for me to well, well, I have a Kiwi that one. I have a Kiwi daughter-in-law now, so I have to pay attention to these things. I, I think <laughs> the, 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 the real Australian equivalent of this is, is Tasmanians getting upset every time someone prints a map of the country that, Without Tasmania. that, that excludes Tasmania. <laughs> I always forget Tasmania. Oh, <laughs> I, I, please, listeners, in, our many listeners in Tasmania, address complaints to Latika personally, <laughs> not to Monocle24. An, and actually, that also goes uh, to our Scottish listeners <laughs> <laughs> Big week for you coming up, Latika. Um, but, William, you've been involved in these things. How much are people who make these vituperative statements of a front actually all that bothered? And, and how much are they just phoning this in because they understand that that's my job? Well, I think some people are predisposed to get angry, you know, the angry of Tunbridge Wells. I mean, most people don't care, but some people... Uh, and then there's a serious point about it. You know, they like to criticise their government. They like to criticise their embassies. I mean, they, uh, I, I think there's just some people who, who would get angry at anything. <laughs> Sir William Patey and Latika Burke, thank you both very much for joining us. Finally, on today's show, something, if you will indulge me, of a cross-media plug. The current episode of The Foreign Desk and indeed the next episode of The Foreign Desk were recorded at the Munich Security Conference the other weekend. And also while there, I spoke to Olga Ivazovska, a chair of the Ukrainian NGO Opora and co-founder of the International Centre for Ukrainian Victory. I began by asking Olga to describe her work with Opora. So Opora was the largest and is the largest organization which fighted for democracy in Ukraine and we had our electoral experience and watchdog activity for many, many years. But after 24th of February, we understood that our legal capacity has to be spending for war crimes documentization because before it was huge campaigning with many lawyers and we try not just observe election or political processes, but documentize violations and to to support the track through courts. That's why we started to work with war crimes after 24th of February, and we established a center of preliminary documentization of war crimes in Warsaw, this center working with refugees, because we have 300,000 Ukrainians which left Ukraine and came to Warsaw after 24th of February, and near 2 million of refugees in Poland. And now we try to focus on high-level justice and local-level justice because it's separate tracks. High-level justice is about tribunal because of act of aggression 
and uh, there is no any branch of judicial international power which has right and responsibility and obligation to investigate crime of aggression, the biggest crime which happened because of the decision made by uh, Putin and high-level politicians in Russia. At the same time, we are working with war crimes on the field and try to gather in as much testimonies and evidence as it possible in Ukraine and outside of Ukraine. And we are trying to build bridges between prosecutor offices in different countries. First of all, it's Ukraine and Poland, and we have separate activity with them because we don't want just to collect the data. We want to have justice at the end. That's why we have to help this official track, not just uh, sharing these awful stories from Ukrainian cities which were occupied by Russians. How much prospect do you think there is realistically of ever seeing very senior Russian officials ending up in the dock over this? So I believe that high-level politicians will be punished if high-level politicians in other capitals will accept that this is the end of war if justice will happen. And sustainable peace, it's like happened after the Second World War when Nuremberg's process and the war and high-level criminals were punished, even those who who killed themselves, but we know that historically they were punished. Because but, but Nuremberg was possible because Germany was destroyed and occupied. That's not going to happen to Russia. Yeah, Nuremberg happened because in 1943, two years before the end of Second World War, when nobody knows what will happen, high-level politicians in Great Britain, in other countries, decided that we need justice. And they worked on this track and when we had possibility to develop courts and justice process, it happened very soon after the end of the battlefield in 1946. And I have to highlight that after the Second World War, world developed new global order and new international legal basis for prevention new aggressions against independence countries. And now we have to update them because the Third World War is ongoing. I'm sorry, but many countries participated on it. And we have the vision about end of this war with justice, because justice versus peace is not truly understandable uh, narratives. And it's very pro-Russian that we have to forget about high-level politicians in Russia, because there is no clear norms or courts which can help us now. We have to develop to create this platform for justice now. The, one of the obvious irreducibles of this situation is that even if the war does end tomorrow with a Ukrainian victory tomorrow, Ukraine and Russia are always going to be neighbours. Do you, do you have a, a vision yet of how that's going to be possible, what Ukraine will need to do to adjust in the long term to having Russia, which, as you correctly point out, is volatile and unpredictable, but it's always going to be right there? What I believe in, that we will have few Russias after the end of the war when Ukraine will win. Because we have to accept the reality that Russian Federation is a state, United States, just because of the authoritarian regime. And if we are going to be enough aware, so we have to accept that Russia will collapse as a Russian Federation. Because there are many nations inside the Russia, current Russia, sure. which broke 
their identity because of the policy of Russia. And when Russia will lose the battlefield, Russia will collapse. So Ukraine has to develop its own vision about future neighborship with Russia, but it doesn't mean that we will have just one Russia or one Moscow of center of decision-making point. That's why we have to have like few strategies for few scenarios. And first of all, when the battlefield will end, we have to start this justice process because it's about truth. It's about far, far future when justice will happen, when reparation will be paid by Russian society, not Russia state, because each uh, taxpayers will pay uh, Ukrainians for recovery, which ha- will have to pay uh, for, for recovery. And other questions, how Ukraine may build sustainability of peace? It's to build its own capacity as a state with rule of law, democracy, and so on, but to participate on a bigger platforms or international organization as EU, because Ukraine has a clear direction to EU. Ukrainian society adopted the decision about that. More than 80% of Ukrainians supporting EU membership. And this is our track for activity for five or even 10 years. But it means that we are ready as society to do even painful reforms to uh, to have a cl- closer position to European countries' rules, economy, and so on and so forth. And I have to tell about NATO. So it, it will happen after the end of battlefield. It will happen when Ukraine will win, but it has to happen because Ukraine have to be a part of this alliance of security with a strong capacity to fight so we have to save as much life as it possible and to participate on the whole international organization which are sharing our values. That was Olga Ivozovska from the International Center for Ukrainian Victory. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our guests today, Latika Burke, Sir William Patey and Kadaria Ahmed. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamanchuan. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel with editing assistance from Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 